The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. If you would look in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, page 914 in the Pew Bibles. We continue looking at the story of the book of Acts. And different people come up with different numbers, but there are probably at least 26 speeches or sermons in the book of Acts. I think that's one of the things that makes this book so compelling because you hear people speak with such, such boldness and zeal and power and you can sense the tension that exists as they present their speeches to the audiences that are listening. It's at least 26 speeches in 28 chapters and almost one-third of the verses of Acts are devoted to speeches. We've already heard several of them, several from the Apostle Peter. We've heard one from Gamaliel. And tonight, we're going to hear Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. This is the longest speech of the book of Acts. It's over 50 verses long. It's 1,014 words in the Greek. And it covers a lot of ground in the story of Old Testament Israel. And so we'll get right to it tonight, but just look out for two things as we read Stephen's speech, just to keep your attention in the length of his speech. Be on the lookout for two things. Look out for geography, and he mentions several different places, locations, uh, spots on the map. And then look out for rejection, as he talks about several of the leaders of Israel who were rejected by their own people. And we'll see two things from these, these verses, this passage tonight. We'll, we'll see the death in Stephen's life and the life in Stephen's death. So before we read this passage, let's pray and ask God's help in giving us understanding. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this sermon, which we will hear tonight from Stephen, we thank you for the grace and the truth and the spirit with which it was delivered. We pray for the grace and the spirit, the same grace and the spirit, to give us understanding that we would not be cold or hard-hearted or stiff-necked as we hear your word to us tonight, but that you would make us humble, that you would make us receptive and obedient, and in awe of your love and the good news that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for his life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from the kindred, your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction And our fathers could find no food, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when He was exposed. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile. Of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire and a bush. 
When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the, of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law and delivered, has delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. 
First, the death in Stephen's life. Sinclair Ferguson says that Paul never got over Stephen. See, Saul was right there at Stephen's death. Chapter 7, verse 58 says that the witnesses against, Saul, against Stephen laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul as they stoned Stephen. That's Saul of Tarsus. That's the one who will be known as the Apostle Paul. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. That word for approve, it means to be pleased. It means to applaud. Here's how the message translation of the Bible translates chapter 8, verse 1. It says that Saul was right there congratulating the killers. It's, it's not like he just happened to be in the area and he, was happen, he just happened to be on the sidelines when these took place. No, he was much more involved than that. In fact, there is a good chance that, Stephen, I mean, that Saul or Paul was right there when all of this started. And if you look back at chapter 6, verse 9, it says that some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, where was Saul from? Saul was from the city of Tarsus, which is in the province of Cilicia. And so this, this very well may have been the very synagogue that Saul was a part of. And it's this synagogue that rose up and disputed with Stephen. And what we find out later from Saul's own testimony, or from Paul's own testimony, that he was all in. He was all in when it came to persecuting the church and arresting people to be brought before the council. Listen to what Saul or Paul says in Acts chapter 26, verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's exactly what happens to Stephen in these verses. And in fact, Paul even says, that he punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. What was Stephen accused of? He was accused of blasphemy. When we, when we look at chapter 6, verse 12, it says that they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. That's basically a job description for Saul in those days. That's what he was all about Saul probably knew all about Stephen. Saul probably knew all about the signs and the wonders that Stephen performed in Jerusalem. He probably knew all about the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke before the synagogue. He knew. And he wanted Stephen done away with. He wanted Stephen's life snuffed out. And so Stephen's life is one that was a short in a tragic life. He was rejected by those in his synagogue. In other words, he was rejected by his own people. 
He was accused of blasphemy. He was condemned on the testimony of false witnesses. False witnesses who said that he spoke against the temple. They spoke about the destruction of the temple and about encouraging the people to break the law of Moses. And then he was sent out. He was sent out of the city, cast out, and he was stoned. He was pummeled to death with rocks. He was put to death in this gruesome, violent fashion. Does it sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to you? Because so much of what we read about Stephen in these verses echoes exactly what we read about Jesus in the Gospels. Even down to the words that Stephen said before he died, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit in chapter 7, verse 59. And he says, Lord, in verse 60, do not hold this sin against them. You see, Stephen's life, it was Christ-shaped in that it was cross-shaped. Because Stephen's life was a life of weakness. It was a life of suffering. It was a life of dying. He was afflicted. He was perplexed. He was persecuted. He was struck down. Why was that? Why did he face such opposition? It was because he was a follower of a rejected Messiah. He was the follower of a rejected Christ. And that's basically the point of his whole speech. He's saying to, to the council, he's saying that the Old Testament is, is basically one long story of God's people turning against the ones that God had raised up to deliver and rule over them. So Stephen says that, after God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia, he made a covenant with him. And he made him the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the twelve patriarchs. But the patriarchs, they were jealous of Joseph, and they sold Joseph into slavery. In fact, he says, and this is the irony of the whole story, of that part of the story, he says that it was Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made Joseph a ruler over Egypt and over his household when his own brothers, the patriarchs, had rejected Joseph. But God used Joseph, and God delivered Joseph, and God blessed Joseph, and he used him to provide for his brothers in the time of the famine. He brought Jacob and his sons and all of his family down to live into Egypt. It was in Egypt where they multiplied, where they were fruitful. They multiplied abundantly until the time of Moses. Stephen talks about how Moses was born in a time of Egyptian violence, violence toward the children of Israel, but God delivered Moses, and God prepared Moses. And when Moses tried to intervene on, the half of, on behalf of his brothers, they said to him, who made you a ruler and judge over us? They wanted nothing to do with Moses. It says in verse 29, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. And that wasn't it. That wasn't all for Moses. Even after Moses delivered the people out of slavery in Egypt 40 years later, and even after he received the law at Mount Sinai, verse 39 says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside in their hearts, and they turned to Egypt. They rebelled against Moses and against God. They turned and they worshipped the golden calf and other idols, and they continued to do that on and on and on, even during the days of David and the tabernacle, and the, during the days of Solomon and the temple. 
The people went after other gods so that the prophets rose up and prophesied, rebuked, and told them to turn or they would go into exile in Babylon. God raised up the prophets to rebuke them, to turn the people from their sins. And what did they do to the prophets? They persecuted the prophets. They killed the ones who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, as Stephen says in verse 52. And so from the patriarchs to Moses to the prophets, God's people had rejected those who had been appointed over them and who had been and they had repeatedly turned away from God in doing so. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. See, Stephen's speech is, is a tracing of a narrative of rejection. And it's this long history of rebellion and infidelity to God. And now, as he stands there before them, God had sent the righteous one. What that, what that says is God had sent the just one. God had sent the one who was obedient to the law. He, is, he had sent the one who was the fulfillment of the whole law, the one who was announced beforehand, the promised one. And what did they do? It was that one that they betrayed and murdered. You see, that's why Stephen stood before them persecuted, rejected, condemned, cast out, and murdered. It's because that's the way of Jesus. And Stephen is one who was worthy to suffer dishonor and shame for the name of Jesus. Stephen was a man, he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen was a man who called on Jesus as Lord. He preached a crucified Savior, and he paid the price for it. There was no place in the people's minds for a suffering Messiah. There was no place in the people's hearts for a message of the cross. And so there was no place with them for Stephen. And Saul saw all of it. He was there for Stephen's death. He watched the people grind their teeth at him. He approved of his execution and he stood there as they stoned him to death. But something didn't make sense. Something didn't make sense in all of that. Everything he could see about Stephen was a life of suffering and defeat. How could Stephen not be crushed? How could Stephen not be in despair? How could he not feel forsaken and destroyed? He had every reason to give up. But that's not what Stephen did. And that's not what Saul saw. Instead, what he saw was the life in Stephen's death. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson says about Stephen's impact on Saul's life and theology. You see, Saul had it all together. He had done everything right. He had all of the credentials. You remember what Paul says about himself. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was zealous. He was blameless. He was proud. The Saul that we meet here in Acts chapter 7, he's an insider. He's a Pharisee. 
He was trained by Gamaliel. You remember Gamaliel. He was the one who was influential and honored in the, in the council in the Sanhedrin who, who gave that speech back in Acts chapter 5. Saul was trained by Gamaliel. He had status. He had power. He had so much power that he could go and arrest people and bring them into prison. He had power even to put people to death for blasphemy. He had everything... He had everything he thought would make him whole, right, blessed, secure. And then he met Stephen. And in Stephen, here was someone who had none of the things that Saul had. Not the pedigree, not the training, not the performance. And instead of acceptance and prominence, here was Stephen who was harassed and he was rejected, he was weak and lowly, and he was delivered over to death. And yet, even in his dying, even in Stephen's dying, he had life. Look back at what we're told about Stephen in these verses. In chapter 6, verse 8, it says he was full of grace and power. In verse 10, when the synagogue disputed with him, it says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In chapter 6, verse 15, he went before the council, and it says that all who saw him, they saw his face like the face of an angel. And even as they turned the fullness of their wrath and rage upon him, it says that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. And he gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Behold, I see heaven's opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So that in his dying words, he could rest confidently in Jesus' care of him. And he could even pray for the forgiveness of those who were hurling their rocks at his head at that very moment. Chapter 7, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. See, Stephen didn't have any of the things that gave Saul his confidence in the flesh. And yet Stephen had something that Saul did not have. You see, if we look at what Saul and the others are doing in this passage, what, what were they like? They were angry, they were enraged, they were violent, they were murderous. And yet here is Stephen, even in his death, and he had life. He was full of life. Why? Because Stephen had Jesus. Stephen had Jesus. And Saul or Paul never forgot that. Sinclair Ferguson has a new little book out. It's about living a life worthy of the gospel. And here, here's what he says. He says, for the first time in his life, Saul met someone who had what he lacked, although he had striven for it for all of his life. He had wisdom, the Holy Spirit, righteousness, a profound grasp of God's truth, and the ability to explain it and to apply it. He had an unmistakable evidence of the hand of God in his life, and that so highly prized quality, Stephen had grace. 
Ferguson says it wasn't only the triumphant death of Stephen that affected Saul. It was the Christ-likeness of Stephen's life. And that he almost certainly provided the clearest, if not the first glimpse of Christ, that Saul of Tarsus ever had. And you see, the change that's going to come in Saul's life, it doesn't happen yet. It's not going to happen for another chapter in chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, but the seeds of that change are planted right here in this episode with Stephen. The seeds of change are planted in the death that he saw in Stephen's life and in the life that he saw in Stephen's death. And here's what Saul or Paul will say. Here's what he will write in his second letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Doesn't that sound a lot like Stephen? Because his life, Stephen's life, was shaped by Jesus' death. And Stephen's death was shaped by Jesus' life, by, by Jesus' resurrection life. So that in both his life and in his death, Stephen displayed the grace and the power of Christ. You see, Stephen was the first martyr of the Christian church. And that word martyr, it comes from the Greek word that just means witness. It's the word martus. Stephen was a witness. He was a witness to Jesus. He was a witness to the power and the grace of God in Jesus that wasn't confined to a particular place. You see, it wasn't confined to Jerusalem. It wasn't confined to the temple. It wasn't confined to just the people of Israel. It wasn't confined to those who keep the law and the traditions. No, it's bigger than that. And that's why he declares in this speech that God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. And he was with him in Haran. And God was with Jacob when he went down into Egypt. And he was with Moses. He called Moses when he was in Midian. He gave him the law in Sinai. And he was with the people as they wandered in the wilderness. God's plan, you see, God's plan has never just been about a small plot of land in the Middle East that borders on the Mediterranean coast. His plan is bigger than that. It's because God's plan is about the whole world. But you know what that message got for Stephen? It got him killed. It cost Stephen his life. And so Martus witness becomes martyr, one who gives his life for his message, one who gives his life for his faith in Christ. How does that message go out? How does the power and the grace of Jesus go out to the ends of the earth? It's through suffering. 
And we're going to see this in the very next verses in, uh, in Acts, Acts chapter 8. It says that the message goes out, the people go out, the church spreads because of persecution. It's because of persecution, persecution that the people are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. It's the persecution that had escalated with the killing of Stephen. It was through suffering. It was through suffering because it's through suffering that the power and the grace of God is most clearly displayed in the life of his people. In suffering, in weakness, in affliction, in trials, and yes, even in death. And didn't we learn this morning about affliction being a teacher and how it teaches us God's word? We learn through our affliction, but you know what this is saying? is that affliction is a teacher, and it teaches others about God and about his power and about his grace. And yet, how often do we want to hide our weakness? How often do we want to be on the winning side? We want to be in the party with power. We, we don't want anyone to see our vulnerability. We want to pretend like we have it all together and like we can do it all on our own. We do that all the time. Um, I was talking to someone recently, and they were telling me about a friend of ours who was about to take a picture at a, at a gathering, and this person, our friend, threw their cane up to the side so that the cane wouldn't be in the picture, so that the weakness wouldn't be represented in the picture. We all do that. We all do that. We don't want our weakness in the picture. We don't want to admit our vulnerability. But weakness is the way. Because weakness is the way of Jesus. Weakness is the way of life. It's the way of everlasting life. And so do you, do you want the kind of life that Stephen had even in his death? Do you want the kind of life that cannot be destroyed by death, that sort of life comes through Jesus who defeated death, who overcame death by his death and resurrection. And Jesus says to us, take up your cross, your cross, and follow me. But Jesus also says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. Father, we pray for this kind of weakness, this humility, this steadfastness even in suffering and trials. We want to be faithful witnesses to you. We want to display your glory and your power and your love and your majesty so that people will see it can't come from us. It must come from somewhere else, somewhere outside of us, something apart from us, something given to us, united to Christ. And so we pray that you would give us boldness in our weakness and our suffering, that you would give us patience in it, 
and that you would give us opportunity to let our, our own suffering, our own weakness, our vulnerability be a teacher, not just to ourselves, but to the world around us, and that you would get all the glory and the praise for it, because it is through Jesus that we have such hope and expectation. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.